Hello, everybody. Harden your hearts as we harry and hound the hallowed and harrowing haunts of heinous horror on this episode of Mangum Reads. I'm Spencer, and joining me are BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing? I am good, Spencer, and I don't have any H words, but uh, the way that you said horror had a very delightful British accent about it, which I'm really digging right now. <laughs> yeah, I realized about that about halfway through that BJ would probably make fun of me, but I went with it. I was just going to make a rural juror joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, on this, on this episode of Mangum Reads, we decided to do a bit of a short story that I found. Uh, found by spending way too much time on YouTube. Every now and then they do a lot of advertisements for movies, and apparently a new film by Guillermo del Toro had decided to dominate the advertising budget for a week. So having seen it seven times enough that I was actually watching the credits and seeing that it was based on a short story, I followed that thread and found a short story titled The Quiet Boy by Nick Antosca. And, sight unseen, I recommended it to all of us to see what that would be like. And, before we go into our own impressions, Sarah, what did the broader internet community think about this story, particularly our favorite negative comments? They think that we need to start with a drink. <laughs> BJ, keeping to the brief. <laughs> So I have I have two things to say, Spencer, one of which is my drink recipe for the night. Um, we'll start there. Okay. So I have a, uh, well, the drink recipe itself is not particularly bizarre. It is, in fact, delightful. I, I very much enjoy the drink that I have tonight. It does have a garnish on it that is particularly impactful, I think. So I, as I normally do, uh, researched drinks around this story. I searched for <laughs> Wendigo drinks. I searched for antler-related drinks. I searched for reindeer drinks. All kinds of interesting things. I did find, as we discussed a little bit off-air, uh, the idea that the Milwaukee Bucks have an unofficial shot attached to themselves, which is called the antler, which, BJ, you also referenced, which is... Spencer, to I think your shock, awe, and delight, Fireball and Pucker Sour Apple, which sounds I, disgusting. I am legitimately impressed you were able to finish that with a straight face to use the word <laughs> delight and that drink and me in the same sentence. Well, we well, will delight in your my enjoying actual it. Drinks, so. <laughs> that sounds so vile. I mean, I, I cannot high, picture... Spencer. I cannot picture that as anything other than a joke joke drink. I, I don't see anything that appealing about that. I well, Spencer, actually... we oh, can mix ahead, it up for you and, and give it a more um, succession feel with uh, Goldschlager and apple brandy. You're not oh, making this better classic. for me. <laughs> I, will I mean, I'll do this, but... That I um, was at the liquor store the other day and in a uh, Calibri fa- font printout the abc liquor store of north carolina had a recipe for a fireball pumpkin pie oh oh no i was going to take a picture of the recipe and make it for you over new year's uh but i didn't have my phone with me so i sadly could not do so but just beware it might be in your future in terms of the value that fireball holds for all of us I think you're the only one that has any, and you have it for the explicit purpose of me drinking it when I'm there. So and it's only because sets... you were supposed to drink it earlier. I had like four <laughs> bottles of it, and that was already agony, and apparently you bought like 50. It was a party bucket. 
Spencer. <laughs> okay, so me. so bottles like Yeah, they're little airplane bottles for the record listeners. They don't need volume to get their point across and it's not a good point. Spencer has a drinking problem and it's what we serve him, not mm. like the copious <laughs> amounts of alcohol that he doesn't drink. My drinking problem is y'all. That's my <laughs> drinking problem. Well, the drinking problem in this episode uh is delightful cocktail. It is a delightful cocktail. It is a version of a Food Network cocktail <laughs> that oh. is based on um, a kind of R- Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer <laughs> cocktail. So it is seasonally appropriate, as well as mitigating the negative thoughts that a horror story brings up in me. So, um, so it is supposed to be bright red, but it's not. What was that, BJ? It's a little bit darker. Um it is Go a little ahead bit darker. And I have a question that, that the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer cocktail kind of segues well into. So Okay. Um so just as a is a quick descriptor, it is a it, it it is actually a really delicious cocktail. It has um gin, which makes it high up on my list immediately. It has uh, a little bit of maple syrup as a sweetener. It has some vermouth and I used a very dry vermouth for it. And it has um, some black cherry juice in it. And then it is garnished with a antlered, beard, spirit animal (laughs) Um, that is made out of a marshmallow and dried cranberries and bay leaves. And as I was discussing with uh, BJ and Spencer before the beginning of this episode, it looks a little bit like the bat from the animated film Anastasia. So I don't really know what to do with that. So what I really want it like garnished and and served is if like you then set it on fire. So it like toasts the marshmallows and the bay leaves just go up in like a puff of smoke. Yeah. Um, But the the reindeer cocktail, um, I I was sort of curious because like, I know it's a thing in some places, and I feel like um, there are places in, in the triangle that this could be the case, where are you going to be comfortable seeing people wearing reindeer antlers as, like, you know, the headbands with the, the antlers and stuff like that after this story? Well, we have two pairs of them in our house. Um, although I will say that one of them has uh, giant holiday ornaments on or holiday light bulbs on them as earrings and the other is bedecked with jingle bells so in the kind of spectrum of terrifying versus not i think they are decidedly towards one end gotcha okay well Well, shall we shall we transition from there to one star reviews um i actually have have the drink that i have which i feel like is surprisingly appropriate because i was looking a little bit to try and make a a, um vague attempt at least Um, fireball and sour pucker it it is not um (laughs) but well i know those are ingredients you just keep around bj oh 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 you have no idea what my fruit based (laughs) liqueur cabinet looks like um, it is from Burial Brewing, um, out in Asheville. Um, it's a fairly nice IPA, and it's called The Steady Death. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> We're intrigued. What is that? I, I mean, it's a fairly nice IPA from Burial <laughs> Brewing. Um, but, but it's actually really cool because they have, um, it's in a can, and they have the wrap on the can 
is a house in the middle of a forest at night that is uh, on fire. Well, that's terrifying, BJ. Thank you. You no longer live in one of those. It's fine. My house was never on fire. We just ran out of water, which would have been a problem. (laughs) Even the house got on fire. fire. So, yeah, we have a short story that we are reading today called The Quiet Boy, which is um, available online at GuernicaMag.com. And Spencer, you recommended this. Can you tell us why why you recommended it before I get into my one star review? YouTube. Yeah, it, it was pretty much it was pretty much just a YouTube spiral of where there was a pretty effective ad for a film that's coming out entitled Antlers, mm-hmm. and it very openly advertises that based on the short story The Quiet Boy by Nick Antosca. And so I Googled that, saw it was publicly available, and went, "Okay, it's Thursday. None of us have thought of anything. This'll do." Uh, I wish there was a more involved process than that, but that's kind of it. And did a little research on the writer, and he's mostly associated with television and horror novellas. So this is kind of in his vein. Um, I most wouldn't of, call mo- it his bailiwick. Yeah, but he most have been associated with kind of uh, various slasher or mixed horror stuff. Apparently he was even put on to be the screenwriter for the new Friday the 13th film before it was canceled. So horror appears to be his shtick. Hmm. Okay. Um, I, I find, I, I wonder if he read, there's a, a LeVar Burton Reads episode called The Goat that basically is the exact same story before the horror twist. I, I, I wonder if he read it. It just, it just seems like so similar and so kind of on point. Well, that certainly might be true. Um, but I would also say, as I'm I'm sure we will talk about, there are a lot of things about this story that might be reminiscent slash derivative of other things. Of everything. That could come from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, although I do not want to start sounding like the writer of our one-star <laughs> review. <laughs> so, Spencer, I really... Um, I know we addressed the question twice, but I'm I'm really glad that you recommended this particular short story because Guernica Mag does in fact enable comments. <laughs> so I did not have to go in search of some sort of vaguely related reviews. And I could Happy to make your life easier. The, yeah, I could merely go to the bottom of the page. And um, honestly, many of them were talking about the the transition to the movie itself, which I which is interesting in and of itself. Um and I have, I think I'm on the second level of a thread here, but it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we are, I am on a comment and I'm going to do a comment and a couple of reactions because sure, we're on the internet um, from someone called Gwillian the, the Gate. The, sure. Should it be great or is there a, some sort of reference that is gate that I should know. Mm. <laughs> okay. Could be a typo. Yep. Doesn't mm. really matter. Um, who says very eloquently, meh, like a million other monsters in the dark stories, derivative and so predictable, just the sort of uninspired crap Hollywood always regurgitates out. 
Seeing the trailer, I was hoping the kid was a serial killer in the making, and that the creature was a manifestation of nature, hellbent on taking revenge on the sniveling coward. Oh well, back to the same real, unusual, and groundbreaking horror of Bone, bone Tomahawk, or Hagaguza, The Eyes of My Mother, or The Woman, also looking forward to The Lighthouse. So the end of that was a lot of references that I did not understand. Um, <laughs> so I feel terrible doing this on the internet, but the punctuation, capitalization, and I, comma use just, just don't quite do it for me. <laughs> yeah, so I try. I tried to. It's, it's hard because we are in an auditory medium. <laughs> yeah, but but when. But periods... I tried to convey sort of what is going on that is weird in this comment. I feel like you did a really good job of where the commas are, but but you just have <laughs> like our listeners have to know that like a bunch of the punctuation, like periods and commas, don't have spaces before or afterwards, and then there's some or they other have ones... too many spaces. <laughs> exactly, that have a space before and afterwards, and it's just like I. If you're going to put the effort of hitting the shift key every so often, just do it consistently. Sure. Um, I will point out, and my reaction to this is, like, by and large, I have actually no reaction to this. But anytime the word derivative is used in an internet comment, I lose mm-hmm. my fucking mind. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly, his example of what would have not been derivative seems to me really damn derivative. Indeed. So I would like... Thank Thank you, Spencer. I would like to go to the second comment under this comment. Well... Oh, it's been addressed? Maybe he's just not as good at integrating as some of the other people here. Um, sure. By... So this comment is by a user called Ryan J. Carnes, and there are a lot of expletives that I would not necessarily point out, except they have actually been rendered as asterisks, so I'm not exactly sure how to... How to talk about those. Um, so I'm just going to put in the expletives I think should be there. Or you could hmm. do bleeping. Well, BJ, you can do that. I'm going to say the expletives. <laughs> <laughs> so you are so fucking snobby. I want to shoot myself reading your comment. You said <laughs> that only you said that only to get attention to virtue signal your supposed sophistication. A parenthetical Ooh. comment by me. Uh, I, I'm a little cle- unclear where the emphasis is supposed to go in this comment. Um, your and your is the wrong version of your here. Uh, shallow. You can't see the depth of the story. It's about a father and son turning into Wendigos and how the other son handles it and the psychology of that. Either you're an idiot or your entire life has been soft and uneventful. Because if you ever experienced shit that actually challenged your sanity, then you'd see the depth of this story. But you're incapable of that. So you search for it. And your fake being able to weather the psychological storm by acting as if you're hollier, ho, 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 than thou critic who knows what they're talking about. Now you, you're you just a kid playing with fire and you haven't burnt yourself yet. Your existential cheap plastic... Your existence. Your, I'm sorry, that's true. Your existence you is cheap plastic, fake and easily broken. I I feel like they were using like a, a speech-to-text editor that then went through like Google Translate. That might be true. That might be true. And I don't... Like, I really don't mean to necessarily 
uh, make fun of the particular syntax that somebody uses in a comment. Uh, but this whole interaction is just very internet. Also, my favorite thing now is internet comics that use the wrong number of periods for an ellipsis. <laughs> it's two or four, man. Um, the number of the counting shall be three. No more, no less. <laughs> three shall be the number. Because um, this next one, oh my goodness, has a two ellipsis, two, two period ellipsis. It's great. Anyway, so so if you just want to go into the deep dives of of people arguing about a very mediocre story on the internet, highly recommend the comments on this one. Yeah. Sarah, do you have any more one star reviews for us, or should we start offering our own review? No, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop there uh, because they there there are kind of two modes that the reviews in these comments go into, and. Um, I think that I have offered one of them and discussed another a little bit, and that's more than enough. Yeah. I like, as we're reading through these short stories, I like to reach out to you guys just to ask what you're thinking as you're reading them. Mm -hmm. And the universal responses to this one were, it's fine. They were just the most uninspired responses possible. None of us were really particularly motivated. So I think we all agree that this story is not bad. It mm -hmm. even had the potential really to be good. It just didn't, really get there and just kind of serves it i, th I guess in the, my, the end of my description would be it's functional it it reminds me almost of a, of a like a 30 minute uh, television script in terms of how it's structured and how it plays out sure. oh that's it that's a good point and i think it's interesting <laughs> i think it's interesting spencer that or maybe you bj i'm not sure but like you all pointed out that i have a i have a distinct aversion to reading and thinking about horror stories. I I basically reached out to you before I recommended this just to make sure you'd be okay with it. And sight unseen, I decided, sure, I can deal with this. I'll read it in daylight, like, wh whatever. Um, and I did read it in daylight, but I, I do feel like this was a quote-unquote horror story that I could have read in the middle of the night and gone to sleep perfectly fine. <laughs> and Downed with faith praise. <laughs> and is that due to the particular nature of the story or in some ways its lack of success in what it was trying to do or no longer living in the backwoods of a southern state yeah well maybe if i was still living in the actual woods of north carolina i might have felt differently um i think it's a little bit of i don't know i think it's a little bit of both and maybe we can talk about spencer what the distinctions between what you offered up actually mm -hmm. are uh, but let's get into the plot first. All right. Well, our main character in this story is a young woman by the name of Julia, who is signed on for the Teacher of, uh, Teach for America program and has been assigned to what is described as being, well, it's the town of Rexford, West Virginia, which doesn't exist, but seems like it's in somewhere the backcountry panhandle of West Virginia that kind of extends closer to the uh, areas around D.C. And she's not been in this position for very long, a matter of pretty much months at this point. Uh, and she has a natural desire to want to teach children, but is not particularly enjoying being a teacher. Largely because she's been assigned to Rexford, West Virginia, which does not exactly seem like a very happening place to be. However, she, throughout the story, starts to gravitate towards one of her students, uh, a student by the name of Lucas, who is, according to a lot of the teachers, challenged, distant, not involved. 
but from Julie's perspective is someone that is in active need of help and support and is not getting it from anywhere. Um, in terms of describing Lucas, what did you guys kind of, what stuck in your head about him based on what Julie describes? Um, I think certainly the idea that he doesn't have any strong connections with any of the other students. Mm -hmm. um, that he is willingly staying back in class to continue to draw, to continue... Uh, to create these narratives and kind of work on homework, essentially. Um, and that even when he is sent outside, he is sort of separate from, apart from other students and their experiences. Mm -hmm. And for an already poor community, he is a even more desperate level of poor outside of that. Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, where he lives is a poor community. So you have like a weird mishmash of students, some that are basically from a dc suburb and are from like the commuter uh planned neighborhoods and then mm -hmm. some that are probably uh to vaguely reference another podcast the monongahela national forest <laughs> um which is actually a real forest so there's that too. Mm -hmm. um where it's it's the sticks it's the boondocks it's it's really essentially not part of civilization mm -hmm. it is interesting though that in the kind of in the context of this story when the idea that there is part of this community that is the suburbs of dc right that is a sort of mm -hmm. commuter bedroom community of dc that that actually has no material bearing on the plot of the story is yeah. is kind of interesting well, I guess I think it's in, it's meant to create a contrast. And so I think, Spencer, kind of what you said about maybe this being sort of the uh, screenplay, where it's just like, how do you show without, like, before you get to see this kid's house that mm -hmm. he is of, he is other, that, that he mm -hmm. is not, you know, one of the children of, these you know uh bedroom communities or something like that where there's a very a very clear difference in what he wears how he looks how he acts and everything else and then we can get to the um eerie wendigo wendigo uh nature yeah then as you say the the author takes the time to describe this uh dc suburb community the lawns the trees um nature of the homes nature of the parents they drive up to pointedly because that's the only other community described as, as then compared to his house so there's definitely a clear contrast they're trying to set up but in terms of uh, the interactions that julia has with lucas though he's been in her class for several months she's only kind of been vaguely aware of him until she gives the students a writing assignment of where they have to just write a story any kind of story does not matter just beginning middle and end well most of the students are content to run out for enjoying recess he stays behind, and as she starts to look over his shoulder, she realizes that he's got quite a creative flair. That he's not only writing a story, he's actually kind of creating a bit of a graphic novel associated with it. With images and pictures drawn in of his story, The Three Wolves. Which she at first thinks might be might be a bit derivative, but what little <laughs> she can do while he's still writing it, um, and what she later pieces together when she quite literally pieces together his torn up story, it is a bit novel of sorts. And a bit disturbing as she starts to, to, to dive into what the necessary implications of it are from her perspective as a teacher. 
should we just cut straight to what the story's about? Because it kind of informs a lot of where we're, where we're going to go. Yep, yeah, let's do it. Because I think we have a sort of Goldilocks thing going on here, right? Or what seems to be a, a kind of Goldilocks thing. Almost yeah, like she, a reverse she, Goldilocks. Yeah. Yeah. She, um, she very much assumes that it's just going to be copying Goldilocks at first. But, it, you know, there's some, some pointed contrasts. So we have three three wolves who are playing different roles. Yeah. What are those roles, Spencer? Well, you, you got three wolves that live in a cave that's very pointedly north of town. And there's a, uh, what is it, the, uh, what were the categories of wolves? Is the middle wolf, is the young wolf, and is it the old wolf? Was that the big one, or the big wolf? Or the big wolf, I don't remember what the actual adjective attached to it is. There are only the yeah, wolves. But, they live together yeah. in a big cave. The big wolf, the middle wolf, and the little wolf. Big little wolf, wolf was yeah. a brute, little wolf was timid, and middle wolf was the peacemaker. Yeah. The and peacemaker. And apparently the middle wolf was always responsible for bringing back various fish to care for the other two wolves. But one day when he came back home, they had what appears to be the word rabies, maybe. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, they just want to go to town and eat people. So middle wolf, mm-hmm. recognizing this was a problem, people. blocked them off in the cave. And still continues to bring them food as they growl and pace inside every day and continue to suffer from their hunger. And he just sleeps outside so as to kind of stand guard to make sure they never escape. Yeah, and our our protagonist teacher has some thoughts about this. Oh yeah, she immediately assumes that this is intensely metaphorical and is describing his home life, and she's 100% correct, just maybe not that it's as metaphorical as she thinks. And also that apparently a couple months into teaching him, finally realizes that he essentially only has one change of clothing, or not even, and is wearing the same pants every day, and has like a little bit of a smell, like... I'm, I kind of want to see the show, movie, whatever that this is um, that's going to be based on this because I, I kind of want to see if the storytelling doesn't work as well as it does here mm. or as well as it doesn't here. Um, <laughs> there, there, are some, yeah. there are some timeline issues going on in this narration. It, yeah. it seems like all, all the teachers are kind of aware of Lucas. It's just that the baseline for most of them is they just don't care. That, yeah. yeah be, Go mm-hmm. ahead, Spencer. I'm sorry. No, no, that's it. Well, and you know, as much as as much as the plot point of the teacher being a sort of Teach for America volunteer annoyed me, because I think that that is a like kind of an easy plot device. It does work in the idea that like maybe there are things so entrenched in the community and the teachers who are who are kind of a part of the community that it does potentially take an outsider to come in and eventually say something is something is going weird here. Something is not right. Uh, I also saw it in some ways as her feeling very much the outsider herself gravitating specifically to a kid who yes. is himself ostracized from the community. Yeah. But she reads the story and she's immediately impressed with his creativity and sees that you know, he's got an incredible artistic flair and is actually making a creative story here unlike all the rest of his classmates and so is both concerned about him from what she assumes about the story. She thinks from this that the dad's neglectful or an alcoholic, the little brother may be abused in some ways and he's wor- and that uh, Lucas is worried that his little brother may idolize the dad and follow him the same path. And so she wants to find out more. She wants to be able to help this kid. She wants to find out what his home life is like. And she wants to 
connect him into a uh, kind of a mentorship program, which focuses <laughs> on encouraging kids with the arts. I know I wanted to focus on that, BJ, for your amusement. This um, one appears to be at least a positive mentorship program. So, so before that, I feel like there's a little story that brings up, like, a little bit of the insanity of maybe small towns that just don't care about stuff because everybody's a nerd to it. But, like, there's another teacher that hasn't yeah, had is. Lucas in the class that mm-hmm. when she brings this up very early in the story, he goes, oh, you have him. Well, let me tell you a story. But how is in a laundromat, Lucas walks in with a bunch of sheets and some other, like, things like that, strips down to his underwear, puts it in, and just hangs out there and, quote, watches his, his clothes go round and round like a dog. Mm-hmm. And he's presenting this as, as if it's just the most funny story in the world. I mean, I feel yeah. like there's the, like, 100% telling this story, like, there's the awkward laugh because you're super uncomfortable, but clearly that's not how this is described. But, like, I, are there places like that where that could just happen and people are like, well, that's just the Lucas kid? I actually really think there are. Okay. Yeah. yeah I don't know. I mean, I did, and like, I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily have experience with this, but I do think, I, I, I do think that there are places in America where this could happen, and I think that maybe it's a little weird that like he's a kid on his own doing that. Like, there, there are potentially facets of his existence that are weird, but I do think that no matter what is considered weird in a given situation in this story there are enough facets of it that are like legible to american society uh for 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 worse that Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be that strange yeah Mm -hmm. and then like it continued on and i guess the next part was just very disappointing to me um which part did you the the Baltimore reference and it was like oh, oh it was the just wire like, it was just like the wire and, and oh god like, oh that's a what the fuck I mean it's just like well like I didn't have a good story so I figured I'd throw in some racism and a reference <laughs> to some much better writing um, I think I think the objective of that section is just to frame the other teacher as a dick yeah We've given two, bit, well, two bits of evidence yeah, to support that. That's it, probably true. Whether it was effective sure. or not in <laughs> actually creating a characterization. But she she deals with that guy and apparently has been dealing with him a while as he kind of vaguely hits on her and she's uncomfortable with that. And this conversation does not help their relationship, but she looks up that this mentorship program exists, determines that it'd be perfect for Lucas, and so goes about her plan to A, get him some other clothes, realizing that he has only one set and he's having to wash it every time, every day, and start to broach the idea that this program could be good for him, if only he can get the permission from his dad to get into it. And then we again have, like, weirdly specific descriptions that don't do absolutely anything for the story um, about where she lives. And then we actually get into the story itself. Um, which Sarah mostly described, and then basically Julia is like, "Oh, this is clearly his home life, and I need to rescue him." Right. Yeah, me, that... the sort of savior of this situation, I have to go in. <laughs> yeah, as said, when she originally broaches the idea, he just kind of runs away. Um, says he changed his mind about the program the moment that she mentions his dad, which she interprets as fear, which only inspires her more to go to the house. And she goes there, and like you said, Sarah. It's not good. 
this place is essentially a rundown ruin of a home. It's overgrown, boarded up, it does not look occupied. And further investigation kind of sort of confirms that it's not really occupied. In the sense, there's a tent in the back where Lucas is very clearly living. But... She looks uh, in the boarded up windows. Anyway. She does. And though there's no sign of people living there, there are signs of people. Two of them, actually. As well as uh, noises in- indicative of people. Possibly people in distress. Possibly a young child. Uh, Lucas's younger brother in imminent risk of harm and so yeah well i was gonna just say in the in this process like she arrives there before lucas has come home from school and does her kind of initial uh, surveillance of the area she she purposely went like an hour in advance so that she could talk with the dad that's her goal here is to talk with the dad and get permission to send lucas to this program and she she's scopes out the area, sees some weird shit, and then Lucas is coming home on the bus, and so she observes Lucas take all of the sheets out of his tent and take them to the laundromat, and then she knows that she has another sustained period of time where she can deal with this house. Right. She she deals with a weird neighbor, who apparently knows more than he's letting on, but is not inclined to tell her anything other than she should go away right now. Yeah, that was a weird interaction. Eh, eh, it's, just, it's, it's again. That's that's the kind of thing of where I'd almost imagine it would it would work better on a visual medium to build a certain degree of dramatic tension. But I think so, reading yeah. it, reading it does, does doesn't doesn't really do much. Uh, but he's gonna have the greatest yokel accent though when they do the movie. <laughs> well, here's the fun thing: the movie's set in Oregon. It's set so in Oregon, not in the, the East Coast. Can, nope. I mean, it's, if it's anywhere outside of Portland, you can still have the same accent. Well, it's set in Oregon, and they seem to be very much tying it into Native American uh, mythology. What? Well, that was... Okay, yeah, I have a lot of questions about that, but let's continue on. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get to what this story does first. We'll get to what (laughs) this story does first. Um, But she sees at first this tall object, which she assumes is the dead, that is just radiating malevolence, evil, and desire to inflict harm, which she describes in in very detail, apparently, what emotions this thing is radiating. Then she also sees what she assumes is a small child flitting between rooms before hearing what she's convinced is the sound of this child in abject fear and pain. And so she feels compelled to intervene and actually literally prize the door off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, Oops. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, she goes in to investigate and quickly realizes that, oh shit, things are rapidly getting real. In the sense that she pretty quickly finds that this house has been completely abandoned and there are two corpses, oddly misshapen and completely mummified, in one of the main rooms. Along with several other objects which are suggestive that a certain, maybe, satanic ritual occurred in the past. Including a pentagram, various objects drawn in blood, a lot of images of goats, several little figurines also of goats. A lot of things that, you know, you don't normally associate with common home life. She also is convinced that she's being stalked by an object who is... Desiring to whisper strange things in her ear, mostly situated around one step more. And all this convinces her to run the hell out of the house. Well, this is one of the more sensible things you actually see a person do in a horror setting, but <laughs> upon being confronted with this, she gets the hell out of Dodge and calls the police and does not go back inside the home again. Kudos to her. Probably should have called the police from the get-go, but, you know, step in the right direction. Sure. And so the police show up, and... 
Somewhat contrary to my expectations, apparently none of them die either here or later. This is usually befitting police officers in horror stories. But they go into the home, and, well, guys, what do they find inside the home? Basically, basically what she found already. Yeah, they find essentially exactly what she found, down to the fact that the the, the chief inspector or the uh, the chief of police or whoever he is feels the same, like, weird-ass feeling that she felt mm-hmm. and feels compelled to tell her about it. Yeah, he does. And he kind of offers his initial theory that the dad, probably maybe even about a year in the past, poisoned the little boy with the rat poison that's in the room. Mm-hmm. And since then, Lucas has been kind of hiding this from everyone for fear of being taken away by Child Protective Services. But the chief of police, or whoever he is, is, like, insistent that, oh, no, there are, there are good child protective agencies there yeah, are good yeah. foster homes we can deal with this i mean better yeah. than living at home with two corpses probably. well living in a tent with two corpses in a house in sure. proximity to you sure I, th- I think even harry potter would agree the dursleys are a step up compared to that yeah uh, there's a there's a difference here yeah so they also find what appears to be a locked door in the basement which is one area they can't get to that it's heavy-duty, heavily reinforced, and they're going to have to call a locksmith to go in there and do, deal with it. But for right now, uh, Lucas, well, they need to decide what to do with Lucas. And this point, Julia says that since they can't find any family members, they can't really call Child Protective Services right now, Lucas will stay with her over the course of the weekend. Mm-hmm. And so about at this moment, Lucas himself comes back, pretty much when the ambulances are pulling up to pull out the bodies. And, and he his reaction loses his shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that he is really, really freaked out that they're pulling the bodies out of the home, saying just repeatedly, they can't do that, they can't do that, what are they doing? Yeah, and it's an interesting kind of play on my understanding of kind of horror tropes, where he continues to repeat things that are only tangentially related to what everybody else understands as the issue at hand mm-hmm. yeah and this can be explained to a degree that he is a child that has endured incredible trauma and has mm-hmm. having difficulty articulating his mm-hmm. exact thoughts though he proves remarkably adept at doing them once everything starts to come to a head later which is un- unfor- un- unfortunate timing for our main character but it, yeah. it is an explanation yeah. potentially for <laughs> why he chooses to be willful almost willfully opaque about explaining why this is bad yeah, so he goes with Julia eventually mm-hmm. as the freaked. police kind of deal with this situation. And he's freaked out the whole way home. He's searching around the cars as something's actively chasing them while the, si- while the sounds of sirens echo throughout this valley. Mm-hmm. Building dramatic tension, bad things happening. They arrive home and we briefly greet a character who's developed pretty much for no purpose other than to die shortly thereafter, uh, her landlord. Who is wearing a red shirt? It's fine. The hippy dippy type. It's is fine. <laughs> massively stereotypical hippy dippy type. Um, they go into the house, and Lucas immediately takes the opportunity, which our main character does not comment on, to lock every single window and door. Yeah. They pull up a tablet. They start to watch. I think it's Despicable Me. Could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she suggests that they go order that they go get, go get some food this he freaks out at saying that they should stay here and eat whatever she has she offers to order pizza 
and everything's still going fine. She's getting a little bit freaked out by Lucas, but uh, I think in just curiosity about how things are going, she calls up the sheriff. And this is where, (laughs) over the course of two conversations she has with the sheriff, she quickly learns that things are rapidly going to hell in this broader West Virginia community. Yeah, he's at sixes and sevens from the very beginning. Um, And it is, it's potentially a kind of maybe run-of-the-mill murder situation in the beginning. Um, But it rapidly devolves from there. Right. He's received a report that some people might be hurt, maybe even pretty badly, over in this wealthy D.C. suburb area. And so he's driving full speed over there. And so he's kind of distracted, but he tells her on the phone that, oh yeah, we got the door open. Don't tell anybody, don't tell the kid. But there was some real messed up stuff in there. Yeah, so this Uh, is where the the horror this is where the uh music changes yeah there's a there's a there's a dramatic (laughs) chord right here um and there's a bunch of dead animals that have been wrung out right the story took pains to say that unlike in every other community in this particular poor community there were no pets there were no dogs wandering around there were no cats it was weird enough that she even commented on it and now all the pets apparently are now have been found in this locked basement inside of this abandoned home. As you said, pretty much twisted like they were towels with yes, all their bones broken inside. But the small ones. Oh, very small ones, which I'm sure very small hands could diligently create as she stares at Lucas as he looks at her across the room. Yeah, which was like which is a very weird. It's like, "Wait a minute. All of these dead dogs and cats. How big were they?" Were they yeah. child murdering size or were they adult murdering size? Well, it also has to deal with the fact that, you know, the dispenser, you mentioned that Julia understood that Lucas had a, a sort of peculiar smell about him at the beginning of the oh, story. Yes. Smell of damp, damp animals. Damp animals. And she recognizes very quickly that there are no pets in the yard. Mm-hmm. Um but he has this smell about him nonetheless. Yes. And apparently the sheriff shares a similar thought and encourages her to be aware to lock her doors and that he'll be in touch, but he has to go check on what, the, what what's going on here. And uh, Julia quickly pretty freaked out because random kid that she invited into her home may have a bit of a, ch- a pet killing fetish, decides uh, to go and play a certain degree of 20 questions with him, which Lucas is not receptive to. Mm-mm. So that conversation going essentially nowhere, she calls back the sheriff, who has arrived at his destination, to find that, oh, some people have now been wrung out like towels. <laughs> uh, so that's not good. Uh, and his working theory is there may be some kind of strange animal on the loose. So, and Julia so has immediately kind of it's, thought it's about her this story, right? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. her image that they've been wrung out like towels, not like... Yeah, it's not. It, he doesn't literally say yes. this to her. No, he's trying to downplay the situation because he is a professional, which may or may not assist him in this particular situation. Uh, but Julia is, as you say, BJ, kind of a step ahead of him. Yeah, because she's got... Mm-hmm. The, she has the little... She has, well, the story to connect everything yes. together. And so... From this, uh, and that description of where he just advises her to immediately lock the doors, 
we start to transition to making this a much more personal horror story. As the previously bar- she noted... The service mm-hmm. on her phone cuts out. The service on her phone cuts out. Uh, the dogs in, in her landlord's house had previously gone quiet despite their barking. And then the screams start to come on the wind from her landlord's house nearby. And... Uh, so she's about yeah. to go outside and then Lucas says, no, don't go out there. And they look out the window, and there is a little boy who is prancing without a care in the world outside in their front yard. I think prancing, and I want to talk about this a little bit more later, but prancing is a correct description for how the story describes this, but there are other descriptions of what his movements are as well Mm -hmm. that I think need to feed into this description. He's also hopping like a frog. Mm-hmm. Um, and my cat just ran into the room and opened the door in the same moment as I described that and really freaked me out. Um, <laughs> uh, he's sort of, he's hopping like a frog. And then I, there are some other kind of weird descriptions of what happened there as well. And I think it's important in understanding what this particular figure is like to kind of Think about what the nuances of these movements are. Yeah. In my mind, it struck me as a series of just almost purposely childlike, playful, random movements. Mm -hmm. Yes. Of where this is a potentially five-year-old boy, whatever else was done to him, and has still maintained that mindset through whatever transition he is now in. And let out of the cave to go play amongst the townspeople. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's relishing the opportunity to be a child, to wander without a care in the world, but with a decided series of changes upon him from where he once was. Mm-hmm. He's hungry. Uh, yeah. And uh, meanwhile, our other figure, who, and again, this is, is, is this pretty graphic kind of things going in the background here. Is we, she describes basically 15 to 20 seconds of sustained, agonized screaming on behalf of her landlord. Which is a lot. That's a yeah, lot. Yeah, when you actually stop and consider what 15 seconds are, like, that's fucking insane. Yeah. Um, so, she, as she's noticing this, and one of the various descriptions we get of this child, we get noticeable description of these kind of antler horn-like growths coming out of the sides of, sides of his head. He's very, very starkly pale white. His head is this continually described as just kind of, kind of being misshapen, bulbous, mm-hmm. kind of swelling at times. And the look on his face and his eyes is not very carefully described other than just being something out of horror. Something that is continually renders her almost incapable of expressing it other than that it makes her feel like a small child whenever she sees it looking at a horror film. So Sarah, are you familiar with the uh, mind-controlling ant fungus? Um... I'm not, not not off the top of my head, although I do know about specific funguses that have like caused sustained hallucinogenic functions in individuals um, that have like ruled half of their lives. So and I don't know if that's the same thing. No. So there's this specific thing in ants, and I'm gonna send a a picture in our. Um, it's, oh, this is about it's, ants specifically. It's literally not, about a fungus not that infects from ants. ants. <laughs> It, no. it, specific, it specifically infects ants, and actually, it's, it's called a, zo- a zombie fungus in the sense that it will take control of their bodies and actually 
direct them to climb to the highest point possible so that they then can latch on to the top of this plant, whatever else, at a high point so that the fungus can then, having no further use of their body, grow out of them and be able to spread its spores over a wider area. And it makes for some impressive visuals as this thing starts to burst out of and grow out of the ant's head. Yeah, and they really do look like very creepy, creepy antler-like things as the, um, if you click on the link, the, the image will give yeah, you. Yeah, I see that. That's okay. It's freaky. Na- 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 we don't need we don't need fake horror. Nature gives us all the horror we can imagine right there. Yes. Uh, um, but yeah, there's definitely a comparison between kind of the descriptions we get of this kid. But the descriptions we get of the dad are purposefully more ambiguous, just because they're all being wrapped up in shadow and kind of demonic injury imagery. Other than he has a very yeah. Yes, sir. No, I'm. I was just agreeing with you. There's a lot of like he's sort of floating. And malevolent, but it is a kind of um, almost impressionistic version of what his spirit is. Yeah, there's an element of almost like, you know, cosmic horror associated with it of where she doesn't necessarily get visuals when she looks at him. She gets emotions Um, that she feels things when she stares at him. That's what conjures in her rather than being able to accurately describe the details of what he is. Mm -hmm. But... He emerges from her landlord's home, holds at a hand that the child feeds from, and then they both turn to stare at the house. At which point, Lucas finally gets a little bit talkative as he kind of says what happened. Which, you know, day late, dollar short, but, you know, at least now we the readers are finding out. That the dad did something which made them like this, presumably whatever that pentagramish ritual was with the, blo- with, the, with the goats and the blood. And he made a bit of a mistake. Or at least didn't fully understand how it worked. That as long as their bodies were trapped inside, they were trapped inside. At least in some kind of way that the kid can lock them up. It doesn't make full sense why there's the locked basement when the bodies are out front. We don't really get that or how it works, but it works in some manner. But as a result of Julia's well-meaning efforts, they're now out and they're now loose and they're killing lots of people all over this community. And they have got their, their target zoned in on her. Because she has taken Lucas away. That is his son, Frank's son, the father's son. And that shall not be. And so, in very different fashion, the two of them start to walk towards the home. As we've expressed, the younger brother is almost, I think it describes as being an exaggerated, cartoonish kind of tiptoe walk towards the house, while the dad just hovers malevolently. And then we start to get some very standard horror tropes as they're... She's going to die too soon, as in now. Yeah, and she has, she has remind, reminders of when she, was drowning, when she was drowning and that kind of feeling of impending uncontrollable death, which is, you know, that is something I've experienced before, and it does just... It, 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 it is a very primal kind of fear. And... But they are afraid of the light. So. Oh yes, very much so. But the lights will be out soon because apparently this whatever magic has a certain control over cell phone signals and electrical lighting. There's something um, mega manish about this. <laughs> but they hover over the house. The lights quickly go out. She grabs a really powerful maglite flashlight, which good on her. Every home should have a powerful flashlight. But <laughs> it quickly shorts out too because they can control electrical issues. But it gives her enough of a time to get a close-in visual if they've just suddenly now advanced immediately to her window, creepy style, another scare cord, 
And they're staring in. Again, faces described in vague terms just being really horrifying and demonic. And... And the kid has kid's eyes. Get it? Well, they have goat's eyes. <laughs> Don't they? Is, is yes. that what described? They have eyes like goats. Um, and then so, then suddenly they're inside the house. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry, kid's eyes. Shit. Okay, now I'm getting it. I'm with you. Slow on the uptake, but I got that one. Thanks, Thank BJ, you. for just waiting that one out. <laughs> it's, be- it's better when it's l- my embarrassment's laid out like that. Uh, okay, good pun. All right. Now they're inside the house. They kind of teleport in. And there's an element of confrontation of where they want the kid back. But as they're approaching, as the kid's screaming, as everything's about to go to hell, Deus Ex Machina, or Pizza Boy Ex Machina, uh, there is a ringing. As there are two pizzas, cheese and, and sausage have arrived at the door. Uh, pizza Boy is murdered in incredibly brutal fashion, which is described in loving detail as the sound of you grab of all of his bones breaking with the similar sound to you grabbing some bubble wrap and twisting it together. And there goes one of my great joys in life. <laughs> Bobbing a bubble wrap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so that happens. And she, thinking on her feet pretty well, runs into the kitchen, grabs some pots, grabs some newspapers, and starts to light fires. Assuming, hopefully, and it turns out accurately, that they don't have any control over that form of light. Throughout all this, she's pretty much having thoughts of, you know what? Practically speaking, primally speaking, why don't I just give them the kid? The kid's already suggested this. This may be my only way of surviving. And she almost describes it as being another voice in her head that isn't hers that's kind of directing her to do this. Yeah, and it's a little unclear throughout this, to your point, Spencer, if it is if it is her kind of rational mind saying this or if it is some sort of manifestation of particularly the sort of spirit of the father coming yeah. through. Yeah. It's not made perfectly clear. She kind of ponders it herself at one point, whether it is indeed a voice of hers that she just never really heard before, or if it's some more foreign entity talking. But it's as she said these... not mm-hmm. the father or the son. It's probably just some sort of ghost. Oh, oh thank you, BJ. Um, after the pizza boy has been thoroughly dealt with, which I'm sure was another 20 seconds of screaming, uh, they come back inside and approach the fires. In which case... The dad again demands that the boy be handed over. He is my son. And there's a kind of implication that if she does this, they'll just go away. That they've been feeding on the pain of people, which she somehow deduces that's what they do. Maybe a certain degree of artistic interpretation on her part. And they're probably pretty sagey at this point, and they just want the kid. But, having again, entertaining these ideas that, what is the boy to her? I should just give him up. Boy himself has suggested that I give him up. He's looking at me with full expectation that I give him up. She decides not to. She puts her hand on his shoulder. She feels the frailness of him, the heat of his flesh. And she it's shakes her head. a weird sentence. I, I, I'll, <laughs> she placed a hand on Lucas's shoulder, felt the frailness of his bones, the heat of his flesh. Lucas I wasn't saying her. the way you said it was weird. I know. <laughs> it's just a, I, I'm, I'm just repeating because it, it is a weirdly phrased sentence. But she declines Frank's offer. And from there, the scene kind of cuts to the aftermath of we hear what happened in the community over the course of the night. We have the one jerk-ass teacher go out to look for her and find a pizza boy and a pizza owner laid out like disgracefully made pizzas on her front porch. And then we get the sheriff finally going into the home with the last line of, it was Sheriff Easton who finally found Julia. She was all over the kitchen floor. She was alone. And the story just ends. Dun, dun, dun. So... That's the recap, and yeah. I think we all, all agreed that 
while the story's not bad, there's a lot of ways it may be able to have been better. Um, the pacing should have been like better. I mean, it, it felt like <laughs> somebody who didn't really understand what a manual was, but was trying to shift gears while driving a car, and just mm. sometimes it went way too fast, and sometimes it went way too slow, and there didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason. And I think, you know, honestly, God bless you, Spencer, for doing the recap, really, of this story for all of us, but our assessment of this story should be understood by the fact that, Spencer, you spent... 95% of the last 45 minutes talking about the recap <laughs> of this story mm-hmm. and we didn't have anything to say yeah it it's functional enough it tells a story <laughs> it gets the points across <laughs> it I mean I think one of my biggest complaints is just the ending is just that yeah there was a point there particularly once things are starting to go to hell where they're actually kind of building some effective tension we're starting to get some interesting imagery that's being that's being brought up with this we're kind of getting some interesting world building about what led to these guys and then now that we've kind of reached an interesting point in the story and are kind of curious where it'll go it just stops very abruptly with a almost just essentially coda put on the end that could be done by just you know a scrolled type at the end of a show and which really felt like a bit of a cop out in that our author didn't necessarily know how to deal with the end of this story. No. And it, it it seems like it's just content enough that it's having the drip, the surprise that she's actually killed. That our heroine of the story died. A violation of all standard horror tropes. But that is not... That brief moment of shock is not enough to sustain it into the story. It's not enough to wrap up what is some actually interesting elements you've given us before. Um, but otherwise, BJ, I do agree. The pacing going into these moments is just all over the place. That once the things start to get into high gear, it works fine in that regard. It, some of the initial pacing and building tension works fine in that regard. But trying to wedge them together does not work that great. And I feel but, like there's just like this weird, it slows down. And then there's the like, there are a bunch of deaths over in the other part of town. Oh, no. And it's just like, oh, Okay. Um, that's that's not how you build tension slowly, but I'll go along with that. Um, <laughs> it, it said it really screams to me that this was a script that was intended to be marketed for television or or, or uh, movies. That it it fits a lot of that kind of pacing into you know fit into a set time format. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know how well that works as a short story in its own right. But. I think, yeah, I think some of it, a lot of it could, but I think some of the individual details of what happened in this story really threw it under the bus. And I think some of that is sort of narrative on its face, and some of it is my preferences in a story. But for example, it really bothered me that Julia was a Teach for America teacher. <laughs> what about that set you off? So I think I totally understand and understand the function of the trope that we have somebody new to the community discovering things about the community, right? Right. The fact every man. Right. You you need an ingenue for for the horror to really. You need an ingenue, which I think is completely and absolutely fair. I think that the idea, particularly of something like Teach for America, where typically somebody from a relatively well-to-do college, not always, but from a relatively well-to-do college is coming into a community with which they have no 
um, experience or interaction with that is too far in the characterization of somebody who has something like a new perspective on the situation, right? Like it, it brings in this sort of like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I am. Who are these people and how are they living? As opposed to a sort of like deep interaction with the sort of social and class dynamics of an individual town. It focuses on her experience as mm-hmm. opposed to the experience of what is actually happening in the gentrification of this area. I mean, it, it, it allows you to essentially treat the broader community as being no more than a, a, a place card setting. That it is, a, yeah. it, it is a backdrop for the story to occur in rather than something that's really developed in its own right. There's some attempts at times to at least give a little bit of color to you know, the facade mm-hmm. you're putting up, but it's... It, because you're making your your main character so thoroughly removed from it, you're only getting those kind of vague descriptions that she would have, rather than anything really into the meat of it. And you're only really experiencing her experience of this situation, which I understand that kind of framing of what, what a sort of ingenue thinks and feels, um, but what is actually interesting in this situation is a little bit more more nuance into what is going on in the community and what is going on in Lucas and his family. Right. Which, interestingly enough, I almost feel like some of the changes they're making for the movie adaptation, like with changing the setting and changing what seemingly the mythos driving the plot is, would help with some of those things. I think that's true. Maybe. I mean, maybe. But I was going to ask about that because I was like actually really confused when I was doing my drink research. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of the commentary about the story was really tied into the adaptation that is happening, which mm-hmm. is apparently like really specifically into this um, kind of Wendigo mythology. Right. right. Um, to the extent that it, I think, kind of l- loses the original story it's definitely appearing to do its own thing because the original story what created frank and his son or whatever else is very explicitly tied into some kind of judeo-christian satanic yes. element yeah whereas wendigo is very distinctly part of certain you know north uh, northwestern or great lake great lakes areas uh, native american lore about a physical embodiment of the taboo of cannibalism and it's a very unique and separate thing uh, it has some stark visuals associated with it, which apparently the, sh- the movie's working on, but it's quite a bit different than this, other than that the two seem to share a bit of a thing with antlers and goat heads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but this seemed like much more of a, a like real summoning yeah. of a spirit instead of a kind of transition into a spirit based on some some kind of established personality mythos. trait. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But if they're kind of tying it into an established mythology and developing that to a certain degree, it seems it could at least offers the potential to allow for a bit more world building and development through characters that actually understand it. Because really, Julie does not interact with many people in this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Pretty much she, the one she, should, other than Lucas, who's the semi main character, is the sheriff. And even then, the reactions are very specific and very spotty, and not really associated on the broader building up of the community of the world or why things are happening. It's just a commenting on things that are already happening. Yeah. I guess I worry about the adaptation more than this story. Cause this was just like milk toast. Yeah, and it, 
I guess I worry that an adaptation that then tries to insert itself into an established mythos is just going to do terrible things to something that like probably shouldn't be messed with with the same delicacy that was used in the story. I mean, it's just like a, oh, and it's a bedroom community and oh, you guys know how like poor West Virginia can be. It, it's it's like that. <laughs> it's like, okay, dude, like congratulations on writing a story that, I mean, I assume Lucas's drawings did a better job of painting a picture. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, and so the story itself was not, like, particularly nuanced in what it was doing. And so mm-hmm. that that kind of translation that you're talking about, BJ, uh, I, I certainly have not seen much evidence of other translations, plus the kind of, like, vague commentary I have read online does not um, recommend to me the fact that it will be more thoughtful. yeah. I mean, is there, like, a Hallmark version of Horror Channel that this could be on that just, like, you know, straight to to video? uh, Oh, boy. I I feel like that would be, like, the, you know, the stars or whatever of horror. There's always an interesting thing with adaptations, particularly of short things, like short stories and novellas, of where if you just adapted this word for word, you'd be, you know, I read this pretty much almost word for word in 45 minutes mm-hmm. uh, t- right now, there wouldn't be much to really work on. Uh, you've kind of got to do your own thing and expand it to a certain degree. Otherwise, you don't really have a movie. You've got, as you said, a 30-minute 30 30 with commercial Hallmark adaptation. Yeah, but I guess I, I, it's less that I'm worried that they'll take the source material and just run with it, and more like I feel like usually... The written story is a little bit more careful, maybe, and how it deals with other cultures, at least sometimes. And then the movies tend to gloss over a lot of things and dumb things down. And boy, I that that movie is going to be real interesting if if it's that direction. Yeah, and this is this is this is kind of my point is that I'm I'm a little concerned with this sort of like. I understood this, and I think you did too, BJ, as a kind of a very Judeo-Christian sort of summoning of a spirit mm-hmm. in this story, right? And it seems from everything that I've read, and I haven't read that much because I wasn't honestly that interested, um, <laughs> but everything that I've read about the adaptation is that they are going in a sort of like Native American Wendigo um, understanding of what these spirits are. And I... I other than the fact that uh, Guillermo del Toro is directing this film, I don't know who is consulting on the idea of Wendigo culture or Wendigo sort of mythology and Native American culture, but I don't have high hopes that is it is going to be particularly nuanced in its understanding of that translation of this story that is not that to something else. Well. I think we've already spent a lot of time on this story. There's only one thing I kind of want to address before we leave of where, um, Sarah, we were a little bit concerned going in that given some of the things that are associated with this story, that this one might trigger you in a few ways for things that you find particularly disconcerting when it comes to horror. Mm -hmm. This story didn't succeed in those. Now that we've kind of gone through discussion of it, why do you think it didn't? So I think that there are a couple of things that I can comment on based on where it 
it niggled me a little bit, right? And where it mm. almost succeeded in, in scaring me. And what I have to say is that, like, the final scene where Julia and Lucas are in the house and the kind of spirits are coming at them and threatening them and whatever was not scary to me at all. Mm-hmm. Nor was the kind of ad hoc conclusion to what was going on. But what did kind of get me, although not as much as it normally would have, were the scenes where, or the descriptions where Julia had first gone to Lucas's house mm-hmm. and he wasn't there. And she was going up to the house and met with these figures that she didn't know, she thought were human, but didn't really know what they were. And the weird movements that they had, mm-hmm. um, kind of especially the younger brother moving across the scene, like that, that started to, to get to me. And I think that part of the reason that that was more successful than other moments was that those had the kind of shadowy visual elements that the rest of the story didn't have. The rest of the story was really quite stark and a little bit like blasé in what it was describing and talking about. But these Mm -hmm. had the moments that allowed for, as I've talked about on this this, um, podcast before, the imaginative freedom to spin out what was actually going on. Here. Mm-hmm. Um, they really plus, needed some good fully work. They needed some good fully work. <laughs> plus the idea that like human figures are moving in ways that they shouldn't be is always really freaking scary to me. Um, and some of those initial descriptions of how uh, I can't remember what the brother's name is, but how the brother was moving across the house, like those were a little bit a little bit scary to me because I could visualize this human figure moving in ways that were entirely unnatural to Mm. the human form. So I guess the, the question that I wanted to ask the two of you, and I I, I think I know where I fall on this is we've sort of discussed a couple of times that short stories really need to focus somewhere between Mm -hmm. world building plot and characters. Mm -hmm. And if you were to, um, make a recommendation for this story to improve it because clearly it desperately needs it. Yeah. <laughs> Where would you put that focus? That's a really good question. It's hard to say because it, it, it gives us barely a taste of a... It gives us a, the, only the slightest taste of character because we really don't never get much of an insight into Julia other than that she's a very kind of stereotype of a Teach for America, of a young Teach for America grad. Um, so characters aren't really that developed at this point. We don't really get much of a taste of world building. We get the slightest little inklings of it that actually at times seem like they could be interesting if they want to go somewhere, but they're never fully developed. So we're sort of pride in each of the categories. I'm not really sure where the emphasis would be most effective, just because so little is built in really to either. I mean, I guess I kind of found the world building more interesting, but it's hard mm-hmm. to do a world building focus for a horror story. Um, really? Because that's a hundred percent where I would have gone. Because the plot is bo- like the plot is rarely going to be interesting mm-hmm. in a horror story. I like I guess, or at least that for me in my mind, that it really needs to be. You get a feel for what it's like to be there, and. There could be an interesting character that is creepy and scary, but if they're 
basically supernatural creepy beings, then there is no character. There is just a caricature. Mm -hmm. And your only character in this story was a kind of generic, presumably white girl who is coming into this other situation. With a bit of a savior complex. Yeah. I mean, you know, you could have uh, Kristen Stewart play it just fine. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I feel like, I mean, what really I think is missing is all of the the problems, I guess, for me, and, and I wonder if it's the same for you, is where the everything else the background the the feeling around the creepy movements of the house like places where it hit like inside the house that's boarded up from the outside like everything's quite not quite right there but like the description of the communities that she's in make absolutely no sense and are just you know jackson pollock wild instead of like a detailed painting and and so i feel like that's where it needs to be and i find it interesting because uh, with the last short story that didn't hit any good marks <laughs> like i couldn't have told you where where i think it should have gone mm-hmm. and so i don't know if this is better because I've, i have an idea of what it should be or if it's worse because there's there isn't any other saving grace to it that it can have other at least for me other than you have to build the world. Well, and I think that's I think that's really interesting, BJ, because I think that's I agree with you 100% and I think that that is why it is being and I was going to say successfully being, but I have no idea, but it is being translated <laughs> to um a you know, a um a movie format that has entirely transplanted where it takes place and what the implications of that are, right? Because it needs that specificity in terms of what culture this is referencing, where this is happening. That's the way that you give it the specific, give the story the specificity that makes it work. It feels really milk toast right now. Right. It, it almost seems like the author thought the most interesting thing, the main thing to focus on, would be the, was the character interactions. Because that's one thing the main thing that's really driving this is just two characters talking in various moments, interacting with Lucas, interacting with the sheriff. And even that, there's not much of it. And honestly, that's one of the more boring aspects of the story. So I almost feel like the author got lost at a certain point what would the more, was the most successful potential they could seize on in this. And, you know, that's an actual, that's a really interesting phrase that you bring up, Spencer, because I think that we had the same, the same um, exact phrasing to some of our critiques of the N.K. Jemison story playing nice with God's bowling ball. Mm -hmm. Um, Was this sort of like it relies on some of these interactions between an adult female and a male child? that hmm. may or may not have worked particularly well. I would posit that that story had a lot more interest in terms of plot and development and sort of language functionality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, but and it, there were some of the same things going on. But I also think that like it was written to be that. Yes. I mean, it, it was written to be a pulp story. Yeah, that's interesting. 
this I felt like it I think that it could have been in like a uh periodical short story format and been this is one of the stories in a uh like an Asimov's science fiction or whatever that you've saved it because there's a good story in it and every so often you see this story and you're just like wait a minute I don't remember this look at it again (laughs) and say oh yeah I'm not gonna read that again yeah and I you know I think uh I am an avowed hater of horror stories and of being scared in general and I was not scared in this purported horror story honestly I think the story that we read last week was scarier Oh, yeah. 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 Or, or, or at least more disturbing. This one, despite the fact we have people very graphically murdered in front of us, but the fact we have some pretty impressive inter- uh, imagery, it never really was that engaging. It never really kind of connected into me. And so in that respect, in his respect of horror, if its goal was to, you know, terrify or stimulate mo- emotions of dread, it was not a success, despite the fact it may have had the potential to it in some ways. It so. It- really did kind of ha- put some dread into me like when i was thinking about rereading the story <laughs> probably not what the author was going for probably not but so it, if our it's... if our listeners would like more feelings of dread in their life <laughs> um so if you would like to um understand and appreciate some of our um reaffirmations of uh review the material before you suggest it um you can find all of our content on mangumtalks.com um where we have quite a number of podcasts that delve into a number of different subjects such as mangum talks tv where spencer and lee are working on the second season of succession um and if you want to glory in terrible people doing terrible things for terrible reasons you should join them and drink with them um we have our pottercast within our podcast of our chapter by chapter read of harry potter um there's also mangum laughs which suffers similarly sometimes from not reviewing our material before doing it which we have (laughs) another couple of uh stamp specials which we should be releasing soon um and then whiskey on the weekend where we tell you about whiskeys that we drink and chat amongst ourselves about all the crazy things in our lives And if you have any comments, questions, or any suggestions, we would be happy to hear them and go through them. Um, We have many suggestions of um, drugs that we should be buying, and we'd appreciate some stories instead. So um, if you click the Contact Us link at the top right of the website, we read all of the things that come into us. Um, And look forward to doing some more stories with you guys soon. Till then, everybody. Bye, y'all.